Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Genzel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. Today's guest is Ron Bonk, best known as the owner of the New York-based underground production and distribution company SRS Cinema. Ron started out as a filmmaker in the shot-on-video world of the 1990s, writing and directing low-budget genre films like City of the Vampires and The Vicious Suite. He went on to direct several independent horror films like Clay, Miss Cannibal Holocaust, or the tongue-in-cheek House Shark. With SRS Cinema, he's produced and distributed numerous other films with splendid titles such as Amityville Bigfoot, Puppet Shark, or Cocaine Crabs from Outer Space. Our conversation revolves around a found footage film Ron Bonk made in the late 90s called Strawberry Estates. The story of a professor and a student who, along with a medium and a cameraman, venture into an abandoned insane asylum to communicate with the dead. What could possibly go wrong? Ron made the film twice, once in 1997 and then again in 1999, for a mere $400 to capitalize on the success of The Blair Witch Project. In our conversation, Ron talks about the making of both versions and how he approached the found footage aesthetic and its spirit of authenticity. He also talks about his first ventures into the world of filmmaking and how his film poked fun at the conventions of no-budget films while embracing the shot-on-video aesthetic, which has very much become a standard these days. The interview was conducted in connection with our German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz, so if you speak German, please visit lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 68, which features an in-depth discussion of Strawberry Estates and many other found-footage horror films. Also, make sure to listen to our interviews with found-footage filmmakers Ted Nicolaou, Brian Leslie, Stefan Avalos and Dean Aliodo here on Talking Pictures. If you enjoy my conversation with Ron Bonk, please visit TalkingPicturesPodcast.com to check out more interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without any further ado, here is director Ron Bonk. So Ron, before we dive into Strawberry Estates, I mean, you made that in your 20s and it wasn't the first thing that you did. Um, so you had already established yourself as an independent filmmaker at the time. But how did you get started? What started your interest in becoming a filmmaker? Oh, um, I just, uh, you know, I grew up loving horror movies and sci-fi movies and used to make up my own stories that I would act out with um, my younger brother and the neighbor and kids. And, um, um, you know, eventually it manifested in deciding to pursue uh, filmmaking um, after years of, uh, uh, after I'd done like four years of school, college already. And, um, uh, you know, I did a two-year degree in accounting and I was working on a four-year in criminal justice and decided to just throw this away and, and take a shot at being a filmmaker. So would that have been your plan B to um, oh. <laughs> go into this direction? I, I don't know if... Um, Uh, if I hadn't, um, uh, if things hadn't worked out as a filmmaker, you know, I don't know if I ever considered a plan B because I don't, I didn't, the one of the reasons, well, not one of the reasons, the main reason I went into filmmaking is because I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I realized I should have pursued it initially, you know, and then, um, 
you know, when I decided to to pursue it, I didn't think like, oh, I'll go back to accounting or criminal justice. Like the accounting, I knew after doing it for two years, I was like, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, criminal justice. You know, um, there had been this um, state trooper who uh, was renting a house up in front of our house. And we lived right on this lake called Anita Lake. So literally on the shores, like you walk my backyard and there was a, the shoreline and, you know, we would swim and play on the lake all the time. And he... Um, would uh, uh, pursue, he would patrol the lake, um, you know, looking for people who didn't have their boating license or fishing license and seemed like a fun, you know, like cush job, like just, you know, relax on the lake, you know, all winter and, and you know, or all summer, I'm sorry, not all winter. I'm not sure what he did during the winter. I don't remember. But, um, you know, just hang out in your boat and, and patrol around and seem like fun, you know, and it was good paying job. And then, but even, I don't know if safe filmmaking had worked out, even if I would have pursued that, I probably would have just kept pursuing filmmaking or I would have um, done something else creative, maybe within the field, like focused on the writing or something like that. Mm, I see. And I can imagine that accounting is something that to a creative person is really a sort of a, yeah. a, I don't know, not something that you see yourself doing forever. Uh, but maybe, a, you know, since you're also producing and running your own company and everything, maybe that sort of um, gave you the groundwork to do oh, what you're sure. doing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's come in handy, um, you know, tracking my own expenses and doing my own bookkeeping. I don't do my own taxes, but, you know, record all the transactions all year long and then provide it to the accountant. So it's been helpful in that uh, terms. Um, so, you know, nothing was necessarily, you know, fully wasted, even if it wasn't fully uh, used, um, um, you know, the criminal justice, uh, uh, you know, we would, uh, um, you know, talk about different topics in relation to, um, uh, crime and, and fighting crime. And, you know, one of the things I remember we, um, were heavily focused on is this idea of like, you know, uh, preventing crime before it happens in terms of building better family structures, you know, starting it in the home and that, you know, it was partially a genesis for one of my scripts, um, Clay, which was, you know, basically mm-hmm. this, you know, the I, I remember thinking about it um, in criminal justice before uh, I decided to, you know, get into filmmaking. That I was like, oh, what would happen in a home with a child raised by someone who was basically insane? What sort of child would that produce? And um, um, and that's where uh, the, the idea of Clay, um, you know, started. That was the genesis of it. So. I said it, you know, it it served um, uh, various purposes, and and um, there was something else I was going to comment on about that, but uh, oh yeah, you've mentioned like accounting being very boring. Yeah, it was like it was the exact opposite of really what I wanted to do. But when I was in high school, and they're like, "Well, you got to pick something, you know, to go to college for," and I remember talking to my um, uh, guidance counselor, and they're like, well, what about accounting? You know, it's good paying, it's an up and coming job. And I looked at it and had a good starting salary and it was a hot job at the time. And I was like, oh, that's, that's how I picked it. I didn't pick it. Cause I was like, yeah, I really want to be an accountant. And I, and I, and, you know, I enjoyed math, but, um, you know, that's, that's very basic math. That's just addition and subtraction, you know, so little, I guess, you know, multiplication, but, and, and, and division, but I mean, it really wasn't complicated formulas necessarily. So, um, but again, yeah, it served its purpose, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
So when you started out and made your first films, I mean, the first one that you did was uh, like an antiquities uh, oh, yeah. business film. What a deal. And then you made City of the Vampires, um, a horror movie, which I think is uh, very much inspired by Richard Matheson's um, I Am Legend. So yeah. Um, how did those um, how did you move into those films i mean there was both you didn't start doing short films apparently but um no -fledged films. Um, yeah the i had bought my camera and i was eager to shoot but um uh the family business was the antique business and i committed to going down to uh, florida because i'm in new york where it's you know it gets very cold in the winter and a lot of snow so we had started this, uh, uh, it wasn't always the practice uh, of my family, but um, uh, which my father and oldest brother um, still do. My father's basically retired, but um, but we started doing this practice going down to Florida for, you know, four to six months during the winter to keep selling and we'd save up stock um, uh, for it. And we'd load up the truck and drive down there, rent a place and just you know, there was a show every single day down there. So I'd committed to doing that, but I was eager to shoot something. And my dad had written this book that he self-distributed on the antique business. So I took that and I was like, oh, I'll shoot this while I'm down here. And, um, and sure enough, I did that and it did really well for me. And um, I forget when I wrote the two scripts, I, I may have written them before the Florida trip, uh, or I may have written them during the Florida trip. I forget which, probably before but I'd written these two scripts in City of the Vampires. Um, I liked a little bit less than the other one. And I was like, well, it's going to be my first filmmaking venture. So let me take the one I don't love. That way, if I screw it up, and I did, it was horrible. I mean, it wasn't a good script to start, but it was okay. <laughs> um, it had elements, you know, that I, that I liked about it. But it, um, um, but it certainly could have used a lot of revisions. Obviously, you know, that comes with experience. And, um, uh, and the only thing I'll say about that is, you know, I always tell filmmakers nowadays to shoot what they love, be, you know, like a script that they love because it was so much work. It was exhausting. That was probably the worst shoot of any shoot I ever did. And after the antique one went really well, you know, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't prepared for this shoot to not go well. But anyways, um, yeah, shoot what you love. So you, you know, if you can put that much energy and time into it, you want to make sure, you know, like it's a story that you love and a script that you love and, and every element that you love. Um, um, so, um, you know, I, I think that helps you find maybe even more energy when making it too, you know. It's interesting that you say that your dad uh, had this book and he self-distributed it. Um, so I'm, I'm, um, I'm kind of thinking that maybe the the independent route was somewhere, um, I don't know, maybe in your genes in a way that you were sure. um, thinking of going independently. Yeah, I mean, growing up in the antique business and being self-employed, you know, my dad was self-employed and then I used it to make money to go uh, to college and pay for college. And so I didn't um, have to, uh, um, you know, I, I think I only work like one or two regular jobs in my life. One was a, a high school, you know, job at the high school. And another one was like concession stands at the War Memorial, which had a lot of concerts and events, you know, but the rest of it was working for myself, my own businesses. And um you know, that was, uh, um, you know, definitely influenced from the uh, the way I grew up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you were also not just doing your own films, but you were also working on other people's films. Like you, you shot a film by J.R. Bookwalter and you edited and produced oh. other films. Um, and I was curious because, I mean, that was really at the, the, the beginning of the shot on video scene, mm. as we call it these days. I mean, at a time when 
let's say traditional movies were really made on celluloid and the consumer cameras to, just really didn't offer the quality of um you know right. what people would expect a movie to look like um so i was wondering did you have a feeling of you know that you guys were developing an aesthetic of your own or was it just something that you know this is what we have available and we'll move on to something else eventually um probably more of the latter i mean um I, I remember in, you know, I took this extra year of school and in, in film and TV classes at a community college. And um, I remember thinking like, oh, what if I shot on video? Because shooting on film is so expensive. And I remember saying this to one of my classmates, um, who I think was actually in TV, wasn't even in the film classes. I was doing these at a separate school from the main one I was going to just with my younger brother. We'd go take this single film class each semester. And um Anyway, so I mentioned this, you know, suggested this to this uh, classmate and he was like, oh, no, 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 you got you know, you can't shoot on video. That'd, that'd be horrible. And um, so I kind of dropped it. And then I went to this uh, John Russo uh, filmmaking seminar and that's where Book Walter was. And he was he showed movies and talked about movies that he had shot on video and working at these low budgets. And I think the budgets i don't know if you mentioned this at the time or i learned it later but we're anywhere from 1500 he may have even done them cheaper to 3500 but i think i remember 3500 i think is a number that always sticks in my head and i remember thinking like oh i could raise 3500 you know from the antique business and here was someone who was actually doing it and making a living off of it and and making and doing what i wanted to do make movies so that's when i was like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot a movie on, on vhs or SV, i end up you know going with svhs um to get the very best, uh, um, you know, footage possible within that budget. And um, I couldn't afford Betacam that, you know, those decks were still you know, really expensive. So it was either going to be SVHS or high eight. Got my SVHS. But I think, yeah, the plan was either I would be upgrading to like Betacam or one inch, or I would um, uh, eventually go to film. Um, but um, I'm sure somewhere, you know, within a few years of that process, I was satisfied with SVHS and um, uh, or and satisfied with working with video. You know, we would do various things to kind of make it look like film. It didn't really look like film. But, um, you know, when I saw like Digital 8 come along, which I shot Strawberry States on, I was like, you know, I I think I knew that that it was going to evolve to a point that it was going to be able to, like, it was going to be super sharp and 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 get you know get closer to film. You know, I mean, if someone came along and was like, you know, here's this huge budget and we want you to shoot on film, and they were, I'm so far out of film, I'd need like a refresher course. But um, you know, they would provide a DPU who you know knew how to shoot on film. And I wouldn't I wouldn't say no, but I I do you know I'm very pleased to shoot on. HD or 4K. Um, a lot of my recent projects have been on 4K, and be able to to instantly see it back and be able to edit it, you know, right on the computer at home. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of funny because these days, I mean, unless you're a Christopher Nolan or a Quentin Tarantino, I mean, everybody shoots on video, and um, yeah, the the whole process has changed so much. So. Um, I'm not sure if I'm getting the chronology right. Um, I think you made the Vicious Sweet before you made the first version of uh, Strawberry Estates. I did. It was um, City of the Vampires. Then I shot a. Sh I did shoot a short as part of an anthology because City of the Vampires is such a failure. I was like, I need to, um, 
you know, really go back and, and work closer to what, you know, like work harder on the story and, and really try to make what I wanted. One, not only was the story bad of City of the Vampires, I wasn't able to make it really the way I wanted to because it, I handled like every job on that, you know, and it was exhausting. And even though I had a lot of people who were great to work with and cooperative, you know, it was still hard to coordinate with them. I lost, I had to fire the lead actor after several weeks of shooting with him. <laughs> wow. And I remember being really happy with that footage. And then I had to really kind of rush and shoot it with Matthew Jason Walsh. who only came out for like two or three weeks. I forgot how long that shoot was. It was probably three but it may have only been two. So I do, you know, reshoot everything like super fast and, and uh, recast the, the villain who turned out to be my brother, the main villain and um, my younger brother. Um, but then, uh, so I went to, I was like, I'm going to make this short, these shorts and I'm going to, you know, experiment around with different, different methods of shooting them uh, or, or different ways of, of telling the narrative. And uh, so I shot this one short and I was really, I was really pleased with how it came out. I was like, okay, I don't need to quit filmmaking. There's, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't completely clueless. And the second one I was going to shoot was a, was a found footage style was going to be strawberry estates. And um, I'd, I'd read this book about a movie and I forget the name of the movie. And I always say, I always forget the name of the movie. When I talk in interviews, you think I'd go find it out, but it was shot from the lead actor's point of view. And I thought, oh, that'd be a cool way to tell the story. And I was like, oh, well, I'll just tell it through the camera's point of view. And I didn't know of any movie that had done this. And I didn't even realize, I think, at the uh, time, like how um, uh, innovative this idea could be. I mean, I thought it was a good idea, but I didn't you know, realize like it would completely become this, uh, um, you know, su subgenre of its own. Um, but uh, that's when Bookwalter contacted me to come out and DP The Sandman. So I put the anthology on hold. And I went out there and I shot that with him. And then I produced um, and shot a movie with a Matthew, J a short with Matthew Jason Walsh, which was called I've Killed Before. Then Matt and I went back to Syracuse with the intent of making more stuff. Um, that didn't work out, Matt. ended up going home. I know he got sick during the um, uh, process of us, you know, trying to get stuff going. He was very eager to get stuff going. And I was like, I needed time to rebuild stuff. Um um, and, and it re you know, established the business and I was really, you know, really trying to establish the distribution at that point. I'd only distributed, you know, the two films and I hadn't done that much with city of the vampires. What a deal had done well, but anyways, um, uh, and that's when I wrote up the script for vicious suite and I shot that, I think approximately a year, you know, after I'd gotten back, uh, mm -hmm. and then, you know, with the partners I had there, we rolled right into gut pile, we shot gut pile. And gut pile stretched out for years of shooting because um, not only to shoot, he wanted to go back and reshoot it and then took a long time to edit it. Um, and then, but so right after Vicious Suite was done, we shot gut pile. And then right after gut pile was done, well, the main principle, original plan principle was done. We rolled into Strawberry State. So there was like three right in a row. And this was the first version of Strawberry States. And it was great. It was a fun shoot. One of the people who worked on it was recently telling me like it was still his favorite production ever. And we had all these people together in one location. And um, um, uh, we had like Deborah Sean and Tina Kraus on set. And we, you know, all these people I'd already worked with on other projects. And so when I got the final movie done and I was looking at it um, and I decided to do the lead because, you know, I was running the camera, which was the first mistake. So I hated my acting and and I thought it was kind of a comedy. I didn't think it was very scary. So I was like, this could be a real scary idea. So I'm just going to shelve this and I'll reshoot it. And then uh, the next year, Blair Witch came out and it and I knew it was going to be big. And I was like, OK, if I don't reshoot this soon, 
like everyone's going to be shooting these movies. I knew all the shadow and video filmmakers would be using this method. Surprisingly, not as many as I thought would do it. I thought it would just take things over. Like I saw, I think more mm-hmm. people doing like naturally born killer style horror movies um, on a, on shadow and SVHS or on analog video, I should say. Then found footage. Um, it, it seemed to be more of a slow development with that. But I was like, okay, I need to go out and reshoot this. And I revamped the script and I was very heavily influenced from being a distributor for a number of years at that point and getting a lot of movies in that um, uh, either were just really bad or they were bad in the sense that they um, the scope that they set for themselves didn't match their budget and they would still mm-hmm. try to live up to the scope. So they would have stuff like um, an opening scroll scroll that would... Uh, you know, detail like, you know, all these amazing apocalyptic events and, and, and but it would never show. Them. And then it would mm-hmm. just cut to, or show like some guy in front of a white wall, you know, when his shadow would <laughs> be on the back wall and he'd be badly lit and he'd be describing the events to you, you know, what happened. And, and I'd watch the movies and be like, oh, just try to go out and show some of those events because then it would become very small, you know, just someone in their backyard shooting, you know, for the rest of the movie or, someone in their house or, you know, just, um, um, or it even cut back to moments like that. So, and you can see that influence in the opening of Strawberry States. It started with this screen scroll and then it cuts to a guy in front of a white wall telling a story. And then he has another guy telling a story. And, and, um, uh, and it saved, um, you know, all this action until the, basically the one hour point, you know, and then after the one hour point, it kicks in and it's a lot faster moving. Um, so it was a lot different than the first one it retains some elements like the obnoxious camera person and um the uh, um ego uh, inflated ego driven um professor you know leading it and the naive you know girl assistant and and the psychic you know uh, a woman who's you know becomes like the key to um spoiler alert comes becomes the key you know for opening the door for uh starberry states to open for hell on earth to open up and, um but um but the tone was definitely different you know like i said it sort of matched this tone of um being this uh, um uh spoof of sorts of the shadow video movies and uh and then there was very much the sort of you know god versus science uh theme that's mm-hmm. debated within it and and, and like you had said earlier it was uh, influenced uh well you didn't mention this you've mentioned uh, City of the Vampire has been being influenced by M. Legend, but was a big Richard Matheson uh, fan, and and um, Hell House, so, you know, Strawberry States was influenced a lot by Hell House, so. mm-hmm. which has similar, I guess, debates you could say, you know, within that within that story. So those were in the original and the short version too. Yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, a bit in the original one too. Yeah, I would say mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Was there a reason that the first version was uh, just basically a short film of 30 minutes? Um, was it always intended to be like this? It was originally feature length. Um, and so when um, I went back and I used some of the footage for a, you know, like a special feature on the original Strawberry States release. So you got a little taste of it. I did this cool like documentary about how Strawberry States was real. The movie was mm-hmm. real. And um, um and then some years after that, I'd say in the last, I don't know, within the last 10 years, but maybe six, seven years here, I was like, well, let me see if I can cut something out of it. Um, uh, and so I went and I picked the parts I liked the best, basically anything that, you know, used me as little as possible. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it became this 30 minutes short. And I, and I like it. I mean, it, it's fun. It, it definitely 
reminds me of that era of, you know, like making these movies for next to nothing. Um, that one, I, you know, I think I had a pretty decent budget for a 25 to 3,500 is probably around the same as vicious sweet, but the original, but the remake I did for like $400 it was in four days. <laughs> wow. Super fast. Yeah. And it was super cheap. And there was the cheapest movie. I think yeah, even short possibly that I ever did, but, um, But yeah, so, you know, I, I watch it and I see the monster at the end and the cheesy effects and it's fun. And and I was glad to have at least released it in that form, you know, so the people who had wanted to see it for years could get a taste of it. Now, a number of pieces of that footage are in the documentary, but at least here it's presented in a, um, a more you know standard narrative form, I guess you could say. Was the first version shot at the same location as the second one? Yeah, yeah, I used the same locations, yeah. Okay. So what about some of the stories that surrounded the building? Were all of these made up by you? Was this all, um, you know, invented or were the local folklore included? It, it was a mixture. So, you know, we learned a lot about the building on the first shoot. Um, so when I re when I did the script the second time, I wrote some of that stuff in, like the stuff about the unmarked graves, you know, mm -hmm. over on the hill. That's true. There's a whole bunch of, you know, people buried there that, you know, that were, um, you know, they had died during, you know, various, you know, plagues or whatever. And I forget now all the history, but they were, you know, they had no, um, no one to identify them, I guess. And they were buried out there and the place supposedly was haunted. And there, and I think some of the sightings that they talk about um, were based off the of stories, you know, people who lived there or the owner had told us. Um, and, and I forget, you know, I'd have to rewatch it and really try to jog my memory how much is like exact or elaborated on, but But yes, mm -hmm. several elements def of it definitely had their, you know, um, genesis there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I like the part and the uh, like the, the long version, um, really, where you set up, let's say, the mythology of the whole place, like everything that happened there and all the stories and everything. I mean, it, it really sets the mood for, you know, basically that anything could happen and that it's almost like there's a couple of mythologies rolled into into one big mythology. Like you have the Indian background. Oh, like yeah. this, this was once a place where the Indian warriors came to train. The, 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 I believe it was on Native American ground. I don't, The part about training I did add in. But yeah, I did. I combined every, a, a few in there so you could kind of settle on which, you know, one you wanted to believe or, or follow or believe they all sort of work together to um, amplify the place or if they all had their root, you know, and the fact that this was one of the gates of hell and had this sort of spiritual energy. So it attracted different, it attract, attracted people in different ways. You know, they used it in different ways. Yeah. And yeah. the personal story of the girl who um, sort of tries to communicate with her mother. Oh yeah. The backstory. Yeah. Where her mother got lost and there. So she has her own, Uh, um, reason, you know, like your own motivation to come in there, you know, it's, it's a bit more personal for her, you know. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and every character in there, you know, has uh, uh, an art to him. So mm. an interesting thing about found footage is always that it's um, even more than traditional filmmaking. It's a make-believe exercise. Like you're really trying to pass this off as being authentic. I was wondering oh, about true. your strategies yeah. of um, how you ensured that this would look like an actual recording of an actual event. Um, I mean, I think one was doing this sort of first hour of nothing happening, you know, and it, and that was, you know, like sort of a tie into like some shows that were on TV and like the Al Capone's vault thing where you'd watch the show 
and ultimately nothing would happen. And that was more common, you know, than like something actually happening, you know, these ghost stories or Bigfoot shows. And I forget exactly what was on at the time, or, you know, maybe even more movies or even just, you know, following the folklore, the legends of, you know, these different monsters and constantly having them be dead ends and never prove proven real. You know, so that so having that first hour where nothing really happens, I thought was a way to make it more realistic, you know, like, OK, you know, even the, you know, the camera person, you know, the, uh, is, you know, he's talking pretty much right around the one hour mark. And he's like, there's nothing happening here. <laughs> this is just boring. <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and, you know, like this is a dead end. And then right after that, you know, things really kind of kick into high gear. So even he's, you know, and I think he even says it's like a bad B movie, you know, like that's part of that tie into the shot on video movies where you watch these movies and nothing would happen. And um, um, so, yeah, all these things were combining and there was something else I was going to mention about it. Oh, so, and and I thought that first hour, the first hour is a bit top heavy with info. So you are getting hit with a lot of different stories mm. and tales. And as this, as the history is unfolding in between the, you know, the professor, ta- you know, catching you up on the history from the start, you know, to where we are now, you're hearing these individual stories of, legends around the area or per- people's personal stories and stuff like that and um and so so i you know jam all this energy you know, this info in the first hour so then in the second half hour you can you know basically kick back and have everything you know you need to process or or, or try to figure out you know what's happening um or, or draw your own conclusions to it i mean i think you know some of it's kind of obvious like why the professor you know goes crazy but you know um uh, maybe to some it wasn't i don't know did you also have improvisation um on the set oh um i have to think uh i mean i would have been open to it um but i believe i believe they stayed pretty close to the script mm-hmm. um uh, i don't remember anyone uh, uh moving off from it too much um you know they they may have changed a few words here or there to but but um but yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so. I, from what best I can remember now, I think they they stuck pretty close to the script. Um, and I'm trying to remember. I know I wrote uh, uh, the two leads were working for me at the time, so I'd written their scenes uh, um, for them, and they usually get pretty decent reviews as far mm-hmm. as their acting in it. Um, the other two, uh, um, uh, the psychic, uh, which is Lisa Chalenza. She's a bit stiff, but she was like learning her dialogue on set. And I remember I would do these, you know, pans back and forth and I would pan over to the professor and she'd be looking at her lines, you know, like this. <laughs> and then and then she'd turn back just in time for me to whip over, or I would have to like let her know and I'd hide the edit, you know. So when I whipped over, you know, um uh she would say her line. So, you know, that always hurts uh uh with acting, of course. But there was a ton of dialogue, so not everyone could get that stuff down. <laughs> And then the professor, um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name off him, but uh, he, um, it, that's him to a T. That's how he would act. I would actually have mm-hmm. to ask him to take it down a notch because he was a theatrical. But if you ever talk to him, he was super <laughs> like, you know, like, I don't know, for lack of a better word, I'm not trying to put him down, like almost sort of pompous and, and and uh well i won't go any deeper with that but but that's just if you if you talk to him this day like if you ever do an interview him, you'd be like is he playing the character in the movie or not <laughs> oh it's just how he is you know so it's funny that uh, people don't like him but they're not really meant to like him i mean he mm-hmm. is like the villain i guess of the of the story and 
yeah. it becomes the ultimate pawn. You know, the expert, you know, is the one who is the, the most seduced, you know, by the place. Yeah, I think it, it ultimately pays off because while I was watching it, I was thinking too that, oh, wow, this guy is over the top and he's really like very aggressive in his delivery, even with like regular scenes. Um, but then at the end, you know, since um, the character set up to be this, um, you know, just somebody who doesn't really know what he's doing at all. And he's sort of responsible for the whole, for, for yeah. everything that goes wrong. So that kind of fits them. Um, I think his name is Bob Fullenbaum. I just um, saw that. Oh, yeah, Bob Fullenbaum, yep. Yeah, his arrogance definitely gets him in trouble. Trouble And aggressive is a great way to describe him because, yeah, I mean, that's um, even in real life, but uh, just how he talks, I don't know if he even realizes it, but he's, you know, definitely um, uh, uh, in the story, you know, his character is very aggressive right from the start. And, and you sense his intimidation even of the, uh, of the you know the the young girl uh, Chrissy Frick played um, uh, that was his assistant. You know she looks up to him and she admires him, and he really doesn't have much respect for her. You know he doesn't mm. uh, treat her very well. So, but basically, the the film was shot very traditionally, um, as I understand it, because a lot of times when you look at found footage films, they were sort of experimental with a lot of improvisation or stuff that the actors didn't know was going to happen, that sort of thing. So. This was basically, um, well, shot like any other film that you did, um, in yeah. a sense, right? Yeah. Um, matter of fact, we may have even shot it in order. I think so, um, but I don't hundred percent remember. If it wasn't, it was very close to in order. I think we just worked through, uh, um, you know, each started, you know, and and day one that was the first time they're entering, you know, and, and worked through each part of it, and and so that helped the arc. You know, the the, the actors um, work on their arc um, and, and keep it clear throughout, you know, the, the deterioration um, in whatever direction that went, you know, uh, um, for like Chrissy Frick's character, you know, where she just goes downhill and becomes very sick. She was able to follow that path um, um, easily because it, she didn't have to go, oh, which, you know, which level of sick am I here, you know? Um, so, so in that sense, it wasn't maybe not traditionally shot because normally we would have shot everything in the same location, but I wasn't really lighting it. You know, I mean, I had a, a camera light, but I was mostly relying on, you know, the, um, uh, the regular overhead lights. There's one moment where the character is trying to set up like a red light uh, and the professor doesn't like it, but, but for the most part, we just, like I said, used the lights that were available there or we used it on the camera light. And um, um, so, so we could, you know, like I said, bounce from, we're shooting everything in this, you know, dining room. We didn't have to shoot everything in that dining room that day. We can just shoot there and go up into the hallway and then go into one of the rooms and go into the basement. And then the next day, come back to the dining room, you know, and not worry about um, is everything going to look exactly the same. So you mentioned a budget of like $400. What was that spent yeah. on? I think that was just spent on food, you know, like to feed the <laughs> cast. Like everyone worked for free. I had all the equipment. Like I said, I didn't light it. The place let me use it, the, the place for free. Um, I think I had a percentage deal worked out with him. And I remember mm -hmm. a few years, you know, like later when it finally came out and I released it, I sent them a check and the, they called me and, you know, I sent a check specifically, you know, to the owner and his name and his brother called me and he's like, what's this check for? And I told him and he's like, oh, we, you know, my brother passed away mm. you know, and I'm in, you know, just tore up the check and didn't, he didn't care if he was going to get any revenues, whatever it was a deal I worked out with his brother. And 
Um, and, and, uh, so location didn't cost me. Um, I forget, if, you know, there might've been some gas money in there. I mean, things were definitely cheaper, you know, back then, but, um, uh, that was probably about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I didn't yeah. hire a sound guy because I used all camcorder mic. Well, I take it back. I did. Unless that was the first one. I was recording sound because I had this little like, you know, like, uh, disc recorder um that was fairly new technology and i remember miking and running sound to that but i don't remember having a crew person i did have one crew person i, I think tim scanlon helped me a little bit but i don't think it was there every day again it was only four days so i may have recorded separate sound for that but when i got home it was more like a, a precautionary when i got home i was like you yeah, know i'm just gonna use the camcorder sound for this it, it works fine <laughs> It's been so long since I've seen it. I don't even know. Maybe maybe the camcorder sound doesn't work. I mean, if it was bad, I was okay with it. I purposely liked the the one where he's on the hill. Um, I remember, you know, being on other sets where the wind was just blowing over. So in the original footage, like you can hear him pretty clearly, but I added all that wind gust to just blow out the sound. So it wasn't. So when you watched it, you know, this wasn't clean and nice and, and pretty and all the sound was perfect. You know, it, it was, a, I don't know if it was the right artistic choice. I'd have to rewatch it and reevaluate. But at the time, <laughs> I felt like it was the right choice. Maybe I just, um, uh, I don't know, wasn't loving it and figured, oh, this would be a perfect point to just kind of destroy the sound of, you know, the scene. It certainly adds to the sense that um, this is something that wasn't really meant to be used professionally, but this was just yeah. something that was shot you know on the go um and i was actually wondering if that was really a, like an unusable scene but you didn't have the chance to do it again and so you decided no, to no, do subtitles the, so <laughs> the sound was definitely uh the sound was definitely clear for that we may have had a little bit of wind noise because i think it was windy that day but um but no we you know uh, i definitely added a, a bunch more to it the one thing i was wondering about if if um uh, the, the film Prince of Darkness by John Carpenter, that was an influence on Strawberry Estates. Oh, was that something yeah. that was on your mind? Sure, yeah. Um, I can't, I don't remember exactly because it's so long ago and I haven't thought about it since, but uh, how much of an influence, but it was definitely, you know, a movie that I loved. I remember um, showing friends down in Florida playing that movie specifically. So, yeah, it certainly, it certainly had some influence on the story and on the script. Yeah, yeah I mean, the whole I mean, Carpenter has a bigger ensemble there, but the professor and the student um, trying to, you know, examine this supernatural phenomenon, for example. That's probably more of a coincidence since that that part of it, because I had done those characters um, in the um, other version, too. But but I would say just, you know, the, uh, you know, maybe even, I mean, I think the first one was a gate to hell, too. Maybe it had influence on that first one too. I don't know. Maybe it just carried over. It probably did. It probably had influence. So maybe that's where some of it came from. But also, like I said, that Legend of Hell House, you know, it, it influenced a lot too. So it was kind of a combo of you mm -hmm. know, several different things. But yeah, Prince of Darkness, for, you know, I would definitely say it was Carpenter's always been a big influence of mine too. Yeah, I mean, City of Empires has a score that I think every review comments on the fact that it sounds <laughs> like the Halloween theme. <laughs> that was. Um, yeah, that was Matthew Jason Wallace, the lead. And I didn't know going into it, I was going to get that score. Um, he just, he, he really wanted to score it. He wanted to score probably more than act in it. And so I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, and <laughs> I think I'd heard a score from like Midnight Two or something prior. So 
I probably had a general idea where I was going, you know, knew he, he was very carpenter influenced, but when I set out to make the project, we, you know, Matt wasn't involved. So I didn't expect to have that score, but yeah, that's probably far and away the best thing about that movie is the score. <laughs> um, yeah. Also Prince of Darkness, the whole theological um, subtext of it. I mean, you already mentioned the, the scenes in Strawberry States where people talk about God and evil and, and, I mean, those are really a big part of the movie. I mean, I was wasn't yeah. expecting so much of that, and I really enjoyed that that the characters oh, cool. took their time to discuss the, the implications of what they were looking at. Yeah, it's funny. Some people either told me they really enjoy that, or and other people really hate it. And I guess if you're not into that debate, then you know you, the, the movie's not for you. You're just going to automatically lose you. You're not going to wait around for things to kick in an hour later, but you know, for some, and it was, uh, uh, you know, it was, you know, something that was coming from me personally too at the time, or not necessarily at the time, but had come before, you know, I think college, you know, I grew up Catholic and my, my mom is very religious and college changed that a lot and created that, you know, um, sort of, you know, debate about, you know, how real is God? Is it really God? And, and that, um, you know, was still, uh, um, there, I drew off of that when I was working on the script, especially the newer script um, for Strawberry States. Yeah, I think it really adds a lot of layers to it. And those are always the moments where you can sort of really distinguish it from other films. Like, um, you know, those are elements where, which didn't have to be in the movie. I mean, the movie would obviously work without them, but they're so specific and they really add some interesting additional layer to it. No, thank you. I'm, I'm, it's always nice to hear someone, you know, got something like that from it. So, you know, that's the intention, but it doesn't always, you know, come across either, you know, the, the, it could be the viewers just not into it or my failure as a filmmaker that, you know, making it, but it's nice to hear. And I do occasionally hear it. So it's nice to hear it. What were the reactions in general um, to the film? Uh, initially, I mean, they were pretty good. I, I remember, um, this one reviewer, I forget his publication, but it was kind of popular at the time, you know, saying that it had the, you know, the, the biggest jump scare he had ever experienced in a movie. And it was the, the swing on the ax murder, um, which I would have thought he saw coming, I guess, but, but he, I mean, it made him, it made him really scared that he stopped and shut the movie off and got, and got, and got any Romeo an angry email, a fun loving, but angry. Like he was, he was upset how much it had scared him. And, you know, initially, the you know, the people who were seeing it were the people who, you know, knew me in the industry as it spread more on the public. You know, I, the, re the reviews have been more mixed, but it took a few years before I really became aware, you know, that um, uh, uh, that there was definitely people who weren't enjoying it. But, you know, that happens with any production, you know, especially when you're shooting low budget. Some people just don't. And even more so then, um, you know, they're expecting Hollywood, you know, level. Mm -hmm production and everything and if it's the first or only shot of video movie they see then they're going to think like oh this movie is horrible but if they see a bunch of shot on video movies then they might think oh this movie's pretty good mm. yeah and then you hear something like oh this is not a real movie and, and oh yeah that's uh... the big one. <laughs> i mean you mentioned you know when you're going back to your question is did we think we were you know, starting some sort of new um, trend. And I don't know if I fully answered that, but I don't, I, I definitely don't think any of us did at the time to mm. see it kind of come around later. Um, my uh, um, oldest nephew, when he was graduating, a bunch of his friends found 
uh, City of the Vampires, maybe Dark Descent, which was the anthology that I, I ended up finishing after I came back from the Sandman. I put the I've Killed Before story with the um, um, Permanent Wave story that I shot before Sandman and some other stuff on there. Um, and uh, uh, they may have seen Starburst Days. I don't remember. But they came up to me and they were like, oh, we really loved your movie. And I remember like all his friends wanted to talk to me. And I was kind of like, is this a joke? Are you guys like playing? <laughs> I couldn't tell if they were serious, but they they really did, you know, supposedly sincerely loved it. And it made me sort of realize like, OK, this was a generation that grew up on camcorder, seeing themselves mm-hmm. in camcorder. And it wasn't strange for them. And they had ex- maybe even been exposed to a few movies that were shot on uh, um, analog video and hadn't been filmed with. So so the look didn't bother them. Um, and then at the, around the same time or shortly after, like this generation who had watched him at the time had drifted away from him for whatever reason. They, I don't know if they, a lot of them say they loved him at the time, but I'm surprised if some hated these movies at the time, they came back to him. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you hate a movie when you first watch it as a kid or whatever, for whatever reason. And then 20 years later, you're like, oh, actually, that movie's awesome. Like, I think it was a mixture of that happening and people who generally did love these movies. So we saw sort of this resurge of interest in those and they and they became sort of this elevated subgenre that people were paying like crazy money to get a hold of. And there was all these collectors competing. And I had these people emailing me, Hey, do you have any old copies of this or this? Or, and I started digging out, I wish I'd saved more of the old stock. I ended up blowing a lot of it out. Um, especially VHS. I wish I'd saved mm. more of the just tapes because they became worth a lot of money. But some of the tapes I remember, like I remember I had tons of copies of abomination. <laughs> I was, I was trying to sell them off at the shows at like a buck each, you know, and that's you know, <laughs> hundreds of dollars. Now, if you found that one brand new, but yeah, they were all coming around and asking and now, and, and it's basically sort of stayed, you know, at that point. So, um, uh, so it did become something that I don't think, I, I, if anyone said that they predicted it, I would be apt to probably not believe them because I, like I said, I don't think anyone, I don't remember anyone. And I knew most of the filmmakers were like, wow, we're doing something revolutionary here. We just, we were just first at the technology and, 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 and that's what got us uh, the status that we have nowadays. Yeah. How much did the release of Blair Witch um, or the perception of Blair Witch influence the reaction to Strawberry Estates? Uh, I think it definitely helped when I was doing the sales because Strawberry Estates sold really well for that 400. I'd stopped counting it um, somewhere around like 28 grand in, in retail sales. Mm-hmm. So it was very profitable. Um, uh, I don't remember if I mentioned this before I started to. So I was like, you know, I need to reshoot Strawberry Estates now because there's going to be all mm-hmm. these found footage movies. And so I reshot it very quickly and released it. And I just rode Blair Witch's coattails. Now, my original intention with Strawberry States was to shoot it and kind of quietly release it. And I was going to advertise like in the back of like UFO magazines and stuff like that. Like, is this movie real? And my problem with the first shoot of it is, is I didn't think anyone would watch it and think it was real. So that was one of the reasons, that, you know, not only was that I didn't think it was very scary, it was more funny um, uh, that I was like, um, you know, no one's, I don't want to ruin this idea. So, and I think at that point I figured like this could be a really good idea. So I was going to do this quiet release and Blair Witch, you know, to their credit, they did it differently. Submitted to film festivals. They had this expert who guided them along the way to trim it up. And then they uh, um, uh, got a lot of buzz going for it. So it got a major release. And then they did that documentary, came on Sci-Fi Channel. So that blew up, you know, became like a huge release right out of the gate. I don't know if it still is the most successful 
you know, indie movie, at least in terms of like the, you know, uh, overall dollars, maybe not um, um, if you updated, uh, you know, the, the dollars from past uh, to today. Um, but at some point it was the most uh, successful. And um, and so I was like, I'm just going to go out and, 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 you know, ride that movie's coattails and and use it to help sell strawberry states. And sure enough, it did. So I had retail outlets that were picking it up. And the biggest one was this one called Aid Fest, which was uh, the stores on the military bases. They ordered something like 1,400 or 1,600 units, or maybe even 1,800, somewhere in that range. Wow. And that was a big sale that, that made like a lot of the money, you know, uh, for it. And, and so again, having Blair Witch, you know, if I'd put it out before Blair Witch, I might have just drizzled out there and maybe it would have got mm. some buzz if I'd done it right the first time. But coming out after Blair Witch definitely led to um, a lot more exposure for it fast and a lot more sales for it fast. Mm -hmm. But also a lot of people then said, well, yeah, it's a Blair Witch knockoff. It's Yeah, uh, I know. I did. I did. It's a ripoff. <laughs> it's funny. Sometimes I have people come to me like, did I heard Blair Witch guys ripped you, you know, stole your idea and ripped you off. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> like when it first came out, I remember putting something i think on my site i don't know if i ever did this in an interview saying like uh you know their idea sounds very similar to my my initial ideas for strawberry states was um it was going to be called strawberry fields and it was going to be set out in the woods mm. and i was like yeah this seems very very similar to elements of my very original story but it wasn't out there that much that i think that they would have actually seen it maybe they did maybe they heard i was doing it and it inspired their own idea but they're not similar really at all outside of being you know found footage and um and like I said, it, it benefited me. But I did I did have some people who would ask me, and one was even fairly recent, say like in the last five years, and I was like, oh, I'm surprised like that narrative is even still out there. Like they must have been digging pretty deep to have to have found that. But um um but and on the reverse end, there wasn't really too many people who said it was a a ripoff of Strawberry of Blair Witch, and I think it's because. They may have been saying it more when I released it, but because social media wasn't as big, I wasn't aware of it. And nowadays, they mm -hmm. don't necessarily know the history of it. So when they watch it, they think it's just another, you know, there's you know hundreds of thousands of found footage movies. So it's just kind of, you know, blends in with the others, you know, but if there was just the, you know, those two in St. Francisville experiment out there, they might have, you know, it, it today, then they might be like, oh, it's a Blair Witch knockoff you know, mm -hmm. to rip up. Yeah, and for a while I wasn't even sure about the chronology. I mean, before watching the movie, um, because I saw like a 2001 release date and even a 2004 release date. And then I just sort of, after I did my research, I saw that it was this close and there was actually the the, the first first version that you did. I think the first version I did was 97, I want to say. And then Blair Witch came out either late 97 or 98. And then I reshot and I think I had... I could be wrong in some of these numbers, but at least close. I think the the reshoot came out uh, in '99, mm. so, so, and I don't know if there was any others outside of those two I mentioned. Um, found footage was out there. Um, I remember when I wrote the script and I was out in Ohio. One of my friends out there said, "Oh, this is like Cannibal Holocaust. You ever see that movie?" Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen it. Surprisingly, being a horror fan, I hadn't really yet <laughs> been exposed to the European horror movies. And, um, and, and, you know, that one, like St. Francisville kind of combined, you know, like a more narrative traditional style shooting with found footage and stuff. So arguably you could say that was the very first found footage, but, um, um, and there, there may be a few others like Cannibal Holocaust that I'm forgetting about, but, um, but really in terms of shooting on video, 
I think there was only the three. You know, I can't think of any others. Mm. Could be wrong. I'm not trying to like sound like, oh wow, I made the third one. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, but I know it was definitely up there among the very you know first of all the found footage movies. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, there were a couple of them. I mean, there was the UFO abduction um, that was remade as Alien Abduction um, by oh, Dean Eliodo. He made the first version in 89, but uh, that was little seen because of a... a oh, a, I didn't even know about this. That's cool. Wow. It, it really got lost for, for a couple of years and then it sort of And that was on video or film? Uh, that was shot on video. Wow, okay. Jeez, yeah. I mean, I may have heard the title, but it's kind of such a generic title. I might not have realized that what it was. So. Mm, yeah, but that's cool. Yeah. yeah, and and people actually, when it resurfaced, people kind of thought that it was a real uh, document of a UFO abduction. So oh, it cool. sort cool. of became like a <laughs> a whole new mythology around surrounding the film. That's the hope, you know. So so if they achieve that, that's awesome. Did, did some people ever uh, think that? Uh, um, Strawberry Estates or parts of Strawberry Estates were real? Um, I don't remember if anyone ever came back to me and was like, you know, is this real? Um, if they thought it, you know, they thought it, you know, uh, and then maybe figured it out for themselves that it wasn't or or just I never heard from them. But I don't remember anybody coming back to me um, and asking that question or ever seeing anything posted where someone thought it was real. So... But again, this is, you know, infancy of, you know, social media. Mm. So it's hard to, you know, you'd have to hear from people directly that they'd write you letters or give you a phone call or something like that. Or an email. I mean, email was around for sure. And interestingly, after Strawberry Estates, you didn't direct for a while. Um, You mentioned Clay, um, but that came out in 2007. So um, there is a... Uh, a couple of years where you, I mean, I, I saw that you did a lot of producing and uh, working on, on other people's films. I did shorts, though. So. Uh, so I don't know if you've seen the Strawberry States DVD, but there's like five Red File shorts on there that I shot mm-hmm. after Strawberry States because okay. I was trying to um, do this concept of this like um, files that were being stolen from like FBI unsolved mysteries like someone had access and they were mm-hmm. slowly stealing these and leaking these out to the public through like a black market kind of going back to my original uh, idea of how I was going to sell Strawberry States because it was going to be like oh some mystery guy is like stolen you know uh, um, government papers or and video files or evidence of cases that haven't been solved and he's leaking them out through you know, some you know, underground, uh, um, you know, circuit of, of, uh, of, you know, other parties who are interested in this sort of stuff, like, the, you know, like black internet or whatever you call um, the dark net. Yeah. Dark net. Like, but before they really started talking about the dark net, like that sort of idea. And um, so I shot these other shorts at very in length and subject and style. Yeah. You know, I played around with the style. Like one's mostly like security, you know, like cameras inside a house and stuff. So I did those, um, and then while I was doing those, I worked on a public um, access uh, show and I started shooting a movie for their show, which we were shooting off and on a few days a week for years. But the two stars of the show had a falling out, so it never got finished. Mm-hmm. And um, um, and then so I kept then. then meanwhile, one of the stars of the show, we went and did our own public access show, which we were shooting. And after first we did like a talk show with comedy bits and we did you know a few episodes of that and then we decided just do the comedy bits part we did a few episodes of that and then i 
and 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 it hit me like okay like i've been wasting a lot of time working on comedy when i want to do horror movies and i remember i went to him and another friend who had joined us and said um you know look uh you know i gotta get back to making movies this is my original intention um and i've gotten kind of far away from it and they were disappointed and tried to talk me out of it but but that's what i ended up pursuing and then a few years later um and it got slowed a little bit from having a baby but um you know i did get get uh, back to a feature so there was a big there was definitely a gap of like I don't know, five six seven years between making features but but I did, um, and I, yeah, I did produce some stuff. But I definitely, you know, uh, did do, you know, some some uh, narrative and 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 sketch comedy type stuff in between that. So I stayed busy. Have you ever thought about um, returning to the world of strawberry estates or the world of found footage? Uh, I have, you know, sometimes I've had this. There was a point at one point where I wanted to go back, and um, it might have been after she kills and like remake everything i started with like maybe not this sweet that one i was pretty happy with but i was gonna remake city of the vampires make a much better story and um uh and then i was either going to redo strawberry states or do a follow-up to it or just do more found footage um and i was going to re-pursue that idea of like different um because i came close to, to getting a um uh, a development deal going for the the found footage series uh, there was a guy I was working with who was out in Hollywood and he was kind of a hot name at the time. And, um, and he was going to shoot a pilot for it. He had a real tough time though, wrapping his head around the idea that it was just someone leaking the stuff out. He wanted to shoot like an opening that showed who the guy was and, and it was maybe shot more traditional. And uh, so I wrote out a, a story idea for that. And basically by the end, the guy who's leaking the footage and gets killed, he gets killed by the FBI turns out he's not the actual source of it so i continued the mystery and he still like i don't know why this guy just couldn't wrap his head around that even though he had worked on like some um um like tv game shows that you know were kind of followed the same format and he got a production deal for some animated show i forget what it was and it really tied up his schedule so it was gonna be a long time before he's gonna shoot this pilot and I got annoyed and our and our contract was expiring and I was like, I'm not going to renew. <laughs> you know, and, mm. and I probably should have renewed and kept trying to work for them on it. But that was the end of doing that series. But uh, what I wanted to do was just use the footage from the shorts and Strawberry States to do like a real um, to try to sell the idea. And the idea would be that, um, you know, we'd hire these guest directors who would come in and tell their own version, you know, style of the found footage, you know, bringing like George Romero or Carpenter or, or Quentin Tarantino or whoever. And say, like, you make your found footage movie. Let's see what you do with it. You know, because mm -hmm. and that was the idea of the shorts of the show. Like, these didn't all have to be camcorder, you know, like someone holding a camera or a camcorder. You know, they could be um, um, uh, 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 all sorts of different ways. And there was one I even had Tim Ritter script for me that was going to um, do, which was a mixture of different formats, like, you know, like uh, uh, cameras, you know, like traffic light cameras picked up some of it, like intercut all this stuff that someone mm -hmm. had gathered all this evidence and made like one video out of it um, for. And um, uh, but again, that just never that never materialized. But getting back to your question, uh, I think I was had too much interest in the stories. I still wanted to tell like a hundreds of stories that have just like I've written down anything from just a few lines to to full script to that I wanted to get to and, and revisiting those, you know, just wasn't as um, 
wasn't lighting enough. It, it, initially, it seemed exciting and fun to do, and I can go back and fix what went wrong, I guess. But but um, <laughs> but then another part of me was like, um, yeah, I told those stories. I think it's time to tell something else. So. <laughs> yeah, I think that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that desire to remake any of those is definitely lost. It could, it could, you know, I mean, maybe I wouldn't shoot it myself, you know, or if I could just shoot productions nonstop, maybe I would do it myself. But mm -hmm. um, for now, you know, no, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shy away from another found footage, but it would have to really be something I felt like hadn't been done before, mm -hmm. or, or just like this amazing story that just has to be told as found footage. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's tough these days because I mean the the genre has become so big, and there have been yeah. so many, so many found footage approaches and stories. And I mean, it's I think impossible to see all the found footage films that are out there. So yeah, they and even like you know my sales guy will be like, no found footage, you know, and you'll see an occasional found footage movie come out that will do well. Um, there was one just last year, or last two years, I think it was. I think I watched it during the pandemic. And there was a couple that were made during the pandemic too that I thought were pretty good, you know. So every so often there is there is a good mm -hmm. one. The one I just um, um, was doing pre sales on and be coming out soon. Woods Witch has found footage, and I think is really funny and 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 well done for found footage, and um, uh, and it sold pretty well on Blu-ray, um, and I think it'll do just fine. But it has some star, you know, some stars in that like Tom Sizemore and Sally Kirkland, and, um, mm -hmm. James Duvall uh laurie linkletter um so you know has some names to help sell it too but um but sean c phillips and you know he's got his own fan base um and lauren francesca who's you know got a big following on instagram so those elements will help it sell and maybe separate it from the other mm -hmm. found footages out there but but because there is so many you know most of them just don't do anything or most of them are just aren't innovative they're just mm -hmm. um they're just you know doing the same old thing and you sort of feel like they picked that format because it was just easy for them to do it mm. that way, you know. I mean, it's, it is easier than, say, setting up a bunch of lights and setting up the camera and mounting it down and getting your actors to actually act. You can just grab the camcorder and be like, you can literally pick up a camcorder, you know, tomorrow and, um, mm. you know, and say, or today and turn to your buddy and say, hey, let's make a movie and we'll just go out and, and, and improv it all. And, but here, you know, maybe we have a final focus point that's about Bigfoot or something. So eventually we'll get to that and have some scares in it. But, mm. you know, you don't need you don't need a production crew. You don't need a bunch of lights. You don't need a script. You know, So you can do it. <laughs> Yeah, and if it looks crappy or if, if things don't quite work out the way you planned it, well, that's part of the well, the authenticity of it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's fun when you can do a movie that way. It takes a lot of pressure off when you're on a super low budget. Like with She Kills, you know, it was a grindhouse style movie. So, you know, if we made it, everything was planned out, but if something happened, you know, if there was a mistake on set, I could use it like there was this... Um, point where one of the characters backing up and he hits the wall and he knocks the picture off and it wasn't in the script but i was like oh well i will use that mm. um um you know, I, I do a quick jump cut where it's falling off the wall and then it jumps back up there um you know so uh and if the character was really bad i was like oh well that's that's fine for that's a grindhouse movie I'm, I'm trying to do it in that spirit of grindhouse movie so mm. i'll use that you know or they say a line wrong i'll use that you know so uh, uh, found footage definitely lends itself to that mm. um, idea, I guess.